0: The Temple of My Familiar by Alice Walker If they have lied about me, they have lied about everything. Lissy Lyles Part One In the old country in South America, Carlota's grandmother, Zede had been a seamstress, but really more of a sewing magician. She was the creator of clothing, especially capes made of feathers. These capes were worn by dancers and musicians and priests at traditional village festivals and had been worn for countless generations. When she was a young child, Carlota's mother, also called Zede, was sent to collect the peacock feathers used in the designs. Little Zede had stood waiting as the fat, perspiring woman who owned the peacocks held them in ashen, scratched hands and tore out the beautiful feathers one by one. It was then that Zede began to understand the peacock's mournful cry. It had puzzled her at first why a creature so beautiful, though admittedly with hideous feet, emitted a sound so like a soul in torment. Next she would visit the man who kept the parrots and cockatoos and the painful plucking of feathers would be repeated. She then paid a visit to the old woman who specialized in, quote, found feathers, and who was poorer than the others, but whose face was more peaceful. This old woman thought each feather she found was a gift from the gods, and her incomparable feathers, set in the spectacular headdresses of the priests, always added just the special flair of grace the ceremony required. Little Zede went to school every morning wearing a neat blue-and-white uniform, her two long braids warm against the small of her back. By high school, her hair was cut short just below her ears, and she tossed it impatiently, As her mother complained of the poor quality of the modern feather. No feather these days, she explained, was permitted to mature. Each was plucked while still relatively green. Therefore, the full richness she had once been capable of expressing in her creations was now lost. Their compound consisted of two small houses, one for sleeping another for cooking. The cooking one was never entered by Zadé's father or brothers. And there were avocado and mango trees and coconut palms all around. From their front yard, they could see the river where the tiny prahus used by the fishermen slipped by like floating schools of dried vanilla bean pods, her mother always said. Life was so peaceful that Zede did not realize they were poor. She found this out when her father, a worker on the banana plantation they could also see from their house, became ill. At the same time, by coincidence, the traditional festivals of the village were forbidden. By whom they were forbidden or quote, outlawed, as her father said, Zede was not sure. The priests, especially, were left with nothing to do. The dancers and musicians danced, made music, and got drunk in the cantinas. But the priests wandered about the village stooped and lost, suddenly revealed as the weak-limbed old men they were. Her father, a small, tired, brown-skinned man with graying black hair, died, while she was an earnest scholarship student at the university, far away in the noisy capital. Her mother now made her living selling her incredibly beautiful feather goods to the cold little gringa blonde who had a boutique on the bottom floor of an enormous new hotel that sprung up near their village, seemingly overnight. Sometimes her mother stayed on the street near the hotel and watched the gringas who bought her feathered earrings, pendants, and shawls, and even priest-like headdresses, and wore them as they stamped up and down the narrow, dusty street. They never glanced at her. They never, she felt, even saw her. On them, her work looked magnificent still, but the wearers looked very odd. There were riots almost the whole year Zede was finishing the university, at which she trained to be a teacher. Occasionally, on her way to class, she had to dodge stones, bricks, bottles, and all manner of raging vehicles. She hardly noticed the people involved. Some were farmers, some students like herself, some police. Like her mother, she had a fabulously one-track mind. Just as Zede the elder never deviated from close attention to the details of her craft, no matter that the market had changed and others were turning out leaky pots and shoddy weavings for the ignorant tourist dollar, Zede trudged along to school, ignoring anything that might make her late. She was not even aware of the threat that came, out of nowhere, she thought, to shut down the school. And yet, incredibly, one day it was shut. Not even a sign was posted. The doors were simply locked. She sat on the steps leading to her classrooms for two days. She learned that some of her classmates had been imprisoned, others shot. But she had almost completed the requirements to become a teacher, and when she was asked to teach a class in the hills, a class without walls and with students without uniforms, she accepted. She taught the basics—hygiene, reading, writing, and numerics—for six months before being arrested for being a communist. The years she spent in prison she never spoke of to Carlota, even though that was where Carlota was born. It was a prison that did not, anyway, look like one. It looked like the confiscated Indian village in the backwoods of the country that it was. The Indians had been, quote, removed, and all their rich, if marginal, land was now planted in papaya. It was to plant care for, and exploit these trees for an export market that the prisoners were brought to the village. How her mother escaped with her, Carlota did not know. Perhaps her father had been one of the guards. Untutored men, fascinated, if resentful, that a young pretty woman like Zede could read and write. Later, when Carlota's mother described the tiny, slivery boats that slid down the river like floating schools of dried vanilla bean pods, she thought perhaps they'd made their escape in one. Perhaps they'd floated through the Panama Canal, mistaken by the U.S. Coast Guard for a piece of seaweed, and then floated to the coast of North America and into San Francisco Bay. It was in San Francisco that Carlota's own memories began, She was a dark, serious child with almond-shaped eyes and glistening black hair. In a few years, she spoke English without an accent, a language her mother at first had difficulty understanding, even when Carlota spoke it to her. Years later, she would speak it quite well, but with so thick an accent, she sounded as if she were still speaking Spanish. Zadea could not, therefore, teach in the public schools of California, and she would have been afraid, in her shyness, to try. They lived in a shabby, poorly lighted flat over a Thai grocery, in an area of the city populated by the debris of society. Some of the people did not live indoors, although it rained so much of the time, but slept in doorways or in abandoned cars. Her mother found work in a sweatshop around the corner. There was no man in her mother's life. There were just the two of them. Her mother's responsibility was to provide food and clothing, and it was Carlota's job to do the cooking and cleaning, and, of course, to go to school. School was a misery to her, but like so many bad things that happened, she never told her mother. The day stooped a twitch of anxiety in her face at 35 was a grim little woman, afraid of noise, other people, even of parades. When the gays paraded in costumes on Halloween, she snatched Carlota from her perch beside the window and drew the shades. But not before Carlota had seen one of the enormous feathered headdresses her mother made, somewhat furtively, at home headdresses of peacock, pheasant, parrot, and cockatoo feathers, almost too resplendent for the gray, foggy city. The headdress was worn by a small, pale man, carrying a crystal scepter, who appeared to be wearing little else. He was drinking a beer. From this glimpse of the Halloween parade, Carlota marked the beginning of her mother's new career. During the day, she sewed jeans and country and western-style shirts and ties in the sweatshop where she worked. At home, they ate mainly rice and beans. With the money her mother managed to save, they bought feathers from one of the large import stores. Eventually, Carlota would work at one of these stores, called World Import. First as a sweeper in the storeroom, among the crated goods so cheap so colorful and pretty, from countries like her mother's. She did not think of South America as her continent. Next, as an arranger of goods on the floor, and finally as a cashier. By then, she was entering college and could work only during summers and after school. Much later in her life, she heard the story of the man who worked in a factory that made farm equipment and each day passed the guards at the gates pushing a wheelbarrow. Each day the suspicious guards checked to make sure the wheelbarrow was empty. It always was. Twenty years later, when the man was rich, he told them what he'd been stealing. Wheelbarrows. It was the same with Carlota. Only she stole feathers, which she always seemed to be holding in her hand as if about to dust something peacock feathers mainly, bundles and bundles of them over the years, because her mother had discovered that the rock stars of the 60s were, quote, into feathers, and that for one spectacular peacock cape, she could feed and clothe herself and Carlota for a year. During her last year in college, Carlota delivered one of these capes to a rock star so famous even she had heard of him. A slight, dark brown man who wore a headband and looked she thought something like herself it was his indianness that she saw not his blackness she saw it in the way he really looked at her really saw her with the calm detached concentration of a shaman he was stoned but even so she had delivered many capes shawls headdresses dresses beaded and feathered headbands, sandals, and jeans to rock stars and their entourages. And in the excitement of trying on what she brought, they never saw her. Never questioned how the magic of the feathered clothing was done. Never wondered about her mother's pricked fingers and twitchy face and eyes. She did not expect them to. They were demonic to her. She hated the way they looked, so pale and raw and wet. She disliked their drugs, always so carelessly displayed. Feathered pipes and bowls were steady sellers. She was not sure her mother even knew or cared what was done with them. Carlota leaned to wait silently, unobtrusively, quote, like an Indian, until the buyer, her mother's only word for them, stopped admiring his or her reflection and languidly fumbled for the always-hard-to-locate checkbook. They often tried to get her to lower her prices. Sometimes she spoke to them in her mother's incomprehensible Spanish and pretended she could not understand what language they spoke. At times, an especially happy buyer going to a ball or to a parade gave her a bonus or noticed she was pretty. She was not, quote, pretty. Beautiful, perhaps. Her eyes were worried and watchful. She might still have been tensely afloat in the vanilla bean pod boat, her face drawn, her mouth hard to imagine in a smile, until she smiled. Yet she exuded an almost tropical atmosphere that was like a scent. When men looked at her, they thought of TV commercials for faraway places in the Pacific. But when they actually saw her, which was rare, They thought of those dry, arid places closer to home. She made them think of rain. Perhaps it was the hair on her head, so black it seemed wet, or her eyelashes that seemed to sweep and bounce the light. Even the hair that grew beyond the hairline and into her face at temples and forehead formed wispy curls like those found in otherwise straight hair after a shower. The rock star, Arveda, saw all of this. He also saw the cape. He put it on. Resplendent within its iridescent shower of blind peacock eyes, he pranced before her watchful ones. It was he who said what no one else had even thought of. Taking the cape off, he placed it about her shoulders and turned her toward the mirror. But of course, he said, this is made only for you. She looked in the mirror at the two of them, at his rich brownness, his nose like hers, eyes like hers, but playful and shrewd, his kinky curly hair, his shapely lips, his small hands, his sensuous hips, low slung, cocked in softly worn fitted jeans. Even his boots were feathered, and she looked at herself, almost his twin. Lighter skin, straighter hair, vanilla bean boat eyes, but... You mean it's made for my type, she said, sounding to herself as if she had an accent, though she did not. It was only because of how she looked. He laughed, hugged her our type. For his cape, he paid Zede $5,000, which Carlota, deliriously happy, took to her. It was the most Zede had ever been paid. With the money, Carlota knew they would buy a car. The next cape she delivered to Arveda, assuming it was for his sister, as he'd said, was for her. Though he sometimes wore his cape on stage— because it looked so great to break out of, and the fans went wild. The only time they could wear their capes in public together was for parades. Within their magic capes that her mother had made, they were indeed birds of a feather. The food you eat makes a difference, he advised her. Left to herself, she ate nothing but sweet cakes, chocolate cream puffs or Twinkies, and the inevitable rice and beans. She knew nothing of salads. She thought she hated fruit. You are young now, he said, and nature is carrying your good looks along, but one day she will grow tired of your atrocious eating habits and she will stop. Then where will you be? Carlotta thought about her mother, how old she looked, how tired her skin was, how lusterless her hair. Her back teeth were breaking off at the gum. Arveda lay on his side in a bed piled high with silken pillows. The room reeked of incense, and there was a faint whiff of Indian food. The room was full of smoky shadows, only one blind adjusted to let in light from the park. You are rich, she said. You can eat whatever you like. Then, contradicting herself, she said, Diet? I don't think diet has anything to do with looks. It is all in the genes. Some very poor people, she no longer considered herself poor, remain very beautiful even into old age. The poor look their best when they are old, Arveda muttered, because they have made it that far. A risk, anyway, he continued, stroking her face. The wispy hair that plastered itself at the front of her ear, Oh, he said, jeans are part of it. He admired his own slim body in the mirror that ran along the wall beside the bed. He tried to imagine his father's body, the body he'd never seen. But good food is most of the rest. When she went to visit him, he offered her fresh juices, platters piled high with cherimoya, guava, papaya, He was a glutton for mangoes. Only those, however, from Mexico. He could not enjoy the ones from Haiti. The misery, you know. She grew trimmer still, eating what and how he ate. Nothing ever heavy in the morning. Fruit. Fruit even in the middle of the night. He said eating cream puffs and meat turned people into murderers. He jogged. Jogging with him through Golden Gate Park, she saw faces like hers that made her wonder if perhaps she had kinspeople, after all, in the Bay Area. She grew to recognize certain other, quote, exotic ethnic groups. She liked especially, for some reason, the Hmong people, who seemed particularly intense and ancient to her, as they carried their tiny babies on their backs, dressed in bright, multicolored clothing— "'covered with mirrors, bells, shells, and beads. "'The fuzzy ball, how was it made, atop their caps, "'made her long to reach out and touch it. "'The babies and their mothers, "'locked in a language more foreign even than Zedé's, "'shopped calmly in the local stores, "'pointing to this American thing or that, "'murmuring in puzzlement, holding their money trustingly out to the clerks in the stores, who were invariably patient, respectful, curious. It was the obvious culture that had gone into the making of the baby's clothes. No one in the Americas, except the Indians, called, quote, Indians, she learned, because an Italian explorer considered them, on first take, to be indios, in God had lived long enough as a culture to create such a powerful, routine aesthetic. You looked at a Hmong baby and grieved that it should wind up in the tenderloin on some of the city's least colorful or cultured streets. Carlota loved also Samoan women. She loved their characteristic heaviness of body and their square jaws, their seeming good nature and equanimity, natural queens and Balinese men, she could always recognize them because of the expression of horror in their faces as they looked about them at the glass and concrete of the city. They were not seduced, not at all. Exercise is to the body what thinking is to the mind, said Arveda, gasping. She, who never exercised, but was always in motion on errands for her mother, ran easily breathing and running and never thinking of them as separate events. She pulled ahead of him effortlessly, her shapely legs flashing. Later they would shower at his house and lie on his bed in the sun. He had come from Terre Haute, Indiana, where his mother was one of three black women who had organized and founded their own church, the Church of Perpetual Involvement. His mother, whose name was Catherine Dagos, was one of the most intrusive people he knew. She did not recognize limits, whether of body or mind. She could not stay out of other people's business. All business was her own. The church was a front for this tendency to interfere, which would otherwise have gotten her into trouble. She was a woman of such high energy, she always seemed to him to be whirling. And the first time Arveda heard the expression, whirling dervish, he thought of it as a description of his mother. But then in mid whirl one day when he was 10, after having broken up innumerable fights, delivered innumerable babies, baked and given away innumerable cakes and turkey dinners, because quote, doing for others was her way of winning a place in their affairs. She simply stopped and sat down and looked out a back window of the house for three years. Her church dissolved. The women whose babies she had delivered forgot what she looked like. The hungry eyed her well-fed body with scorn. She didn't care. She began to play with her makeup, painting her face, dyeing her hair, doing her nails, as if she were creating a work of art with her body and with her mind, she appeared to roam great empty distances. She gave up trying to improve the world and instead declined to notice it. As a teenager, Arveda had felt no strong connection to her. He was good in band, terrible in everything else. She did not seem to mind. Everyone on their block praised him for his music. He sang and played guitar and flute. She gave him no praise. She looked through him. One day, the picture of his father, kept in a silver frame on the night table by his bed his whole life, disappeared. Nothing, no thing, can replace love. That is what she'd wanted on her headstone but one of her sisters, his aunt Frudier, to whom she'd left this directive, thought it too risque. His mother was instead buried under a pale gray stone that carried only her name, and not even the year she was born. But he thought of it as a kind of key to her he might use later on when he knew more. Who was she, this woman, who was his mother? He didn't know. Lying with Carlota on his spacious bed, the blue satin duvet cover smooth and cool beneath their legs, Arveda told her odd bits and pieces of his life of the father figure he'd somehow found for his adolescent years, while his mother stared vacantly out the window, Simon Isaac, or Uncle Isaac not that he would ever dare call mr isaac uncle to his face only in his heart he understood he must never call anyone uncle except another black person mr isaac was a greengrocer in the neighborhood where arveda and his mother lived tall and big-boned with brooding brown eyes and a mane of wiry red hair he sat in the doorway of his shop playing the violin All the children of the neighborhood crowded around, the nickels and dimes clutched in their palms for sweets temporarily forgotten. He mesmerized them with his perfectly lovely, improbable music. None of the children had seen a violin before. No one was more enchanted than Arveda, whose fingers crept, all on their own, to rest on the box of the fiddle. Fiddle was the word for violin Arveda had once heard at home. He inched ever closer so that he could feel the sweetness of the vibrations down in the center of himself, the near-orgasmic opening out in the base of his groin. It seemed natural, when he at last owned both a cheap guitar and a flute, that he would sit on a Coca-Cola crate near Mr. Isaac's straight chair and play. Natural also that Mr. Isaac would encourage his efforts with quick flashes of delight from his suddenly friendly eyes, and that, frequently, as they played together more and more easily, he would seem to forget Arveda's presence and only at the end of a tune look across at him, brown, skinny, perched on the Coca-Cola crate, and, with a lopsided smile, ruffle his curls." And what happened asked Carlota imagining Isaac the green grocer playing his violin and never working He had come from Palestine said Araveda everyone in his village not dead or too sick to move came here to America He used to tell me about what it was like on the boat coming over how packed it was how afraid everyone was of getting sick There had been an epidemic some kind of plague And the people were all herded together, and actually stank, he said, from fear. And when they got to Ellis Island, on the very day they arrived, he discovered a boil in his left ear. A big, fat, juicy boil, like a baseball sticking out of his ear, was how he described it. Or like a spider's egg sack when he was feeling more modest. He was sure he had, quote, it. And right away the doctors, quote, in their white coats, he always said that, came aboard, and they lanced the boil while looking very nervous about possible contagion. He was not permitted off the ship for two weeks while, quote, those in authority, discussed whether he should be sent right back to Palestine. After that, they took him to a quarantine barrack, and there, from day to day, he, quote, politely rotted, as he liked to put it. His ear began to heal, but the rest of him began to feel, quote, not so terrific. Ellis Island, Carlotta queried. Arveda explained how it was the same as Angel Island, only on the East Coast. Angel Island, where mostly Asian immigrants were detained, sometimes for years, before being permitted into the country, was a place that, thanks to the aid of rich American friends, as Zede once mysteriously mentioned, Carlota and her mother had avoided. It was there, on Ellis Island, Arveda continued, that Uncle Isaac saw his first native-grown colored man. He was pushing a broom. It wasn't, he said to me once, that he'd never seen brown people. The Arabs in Palestine were brown, but their brownness seemed only skin-deep, whereas this man that he watched pushing the broom with a little skip-hop in his walk as he mumbled lyrics to songs and hummed under his breath seemed to be colored all the way to and past his own bones. It was the first thing he understood about colored people, that it was probably the hop-skip way the man pushed the broom and seemed to be singing in his head that annoyed white people, not just the color of his skin. In truth, he could not see how anyone could object to that. A more luminous, clean brown anything was hard to imagine. Even if you only liked calfskin gloves, said Uncle Isaac. Even if you only admired a nice pair of oxblood colored loafers. Even if you only loved Hershey bars, and he would laugh. This man, as it turned out, said Arveda, was a musician who worked on Ellis Island as a janitor to support himself and his family. Soon everyone else in the barrack had been pronounced free of disease and left, and there were just the two of them. They talked, using their hands, eyes, strange sounds, and hops and skips, about music. The colored man's name was Ulysses, and after Isaac left Ellis Island, he never saw or heard of him again. But he always remembered that on his last day in that place, just when he thought he'd go mad from the isolation and boredom, Ulysses brought the news, long before there was any official announcement to him, of his impending release, and brought him also a news magazine full of pictures of the world he was about to enter in which not a single face that looked like Ulysses appeared. Uncle Isaac said he searched each photograph carefully, a cold dread settling in his chest. What sort of world was this in which his very present friend did not appear? And then from the pocket of his baggy brown coat, with its frayed holes at the elbows, Ulysses had produced and offered to him A bright red apple. This gift was Ulysses' handshake and hug, and it left Mr. Isaac hungry. For, unable to embrace a colored person, Ulysses warned him it was practically illegal to do so. What was he to offer? Nothing was yet his. Carlota smoothed the hair that poofed above Arveda's ear. She kissed him on the eyes no barrier like that for her she thought happily ever ever none none it made her feel terribly free and she laid herself full length against his comforting warmth the sheen of his skin seeming to add a shimmer to her own she nestled against all this goodness which felt to her to be the very flesh of the earth how foolish How pitiful people were, she thought, not to know enough to try to get next to what could only do them good. It was a magic apple, said Arveda, smiling into her hair. This was before the time of poisoned, drug-filled apples. Musicians used to carry only healthful things. Really, he laughed. There was even a time when musicians did not smoke reefer, although probably never a time when they didn't drink wine. Carlota smiled with him. There was even a time Arveda looked down mischievously into her face, and I know you won't believe this, when music was played softly, to be heard. Only dead people need loud music, you know. I call loud rock, quote, Dracula music, because you look out and there are all those dead and deaf and soulless zombies clod-hopping across the floor. "'Even colored people are zombies these days. "'It's enough to shrivel up your short hairs.' "'You were talking about fruit,' said Carlota, giggling. "'So I was,' said Arveda. "'So, Uncle Isaac bit into the apple "'and thought about his future. "'In Palestine he'd peddled orchard fruit "'and garden vegetables with his father, "'a hirsute, pious man. "'He would try the same thing in America.' His basket grew into a cart, his cart into a stand, his stand into a store. He became a success. But he was not happy, even after realizing his youthful ambition to study, quote, in university and to learn to play the violin. He missed the heat and the peaches and the Arabs. For Arabs had lived all around him in Palestine, just as colored people lived all around him in Haute. Many of the dead he'd left behind, his friends, were Arabs. When he learned there would be a Jewish state, he accepted it as an excuse to go back. But he was really going back to the sun, the dates, the almonds, the oranges, the grapes, the sound of the Arab language that had filled his head as a boy, "'though he had spoken it only in the phrases learned on the street. "'He would go back to help them all build,' he said. "'And he closed up his shop one day and left.'